SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast here on, on Underdog Dynasty, SB Nation's home for G5 football. A very happy Thanksgiving weekend to you all. Hope you're all staying safe and happy and healthy as always. Joe Lundergan and Eric Henry here with you as uh, we prepare to stuff our faces and uh, <laughs> drain our bank accounts with all the uh, Black Friday sales happening. How about you, Eric? Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to exactly the same. I'm a big Amazon guy. Uh, I don't go in person. I mean, that was before COVID, after COVID. You know, I was a, I was an Amazon guy in the first place. Uh, so was it like Cyber Monday, I believe they call it. But I definitely will be looking to take advantage of a couple deals here and there. Yeah, exactly. Same here with, uh, thank God for monthly stipends, right? Cause I don't know if I could really get through all the, all the stuff I want to buy for myself on top of, uh, all the, you know, let's be honest, probably mediocre gifts. I'm going to end up getting people, but it is what it is. Um, so yeah, we got a few more weeks of CUSA football to plow through here on our way to the end of a weird, college football season as we've covered in depth um let's start by looking back at the games that we did get to see played last week uh under the friday night lights in boca we saw fau beat umass 24 to 2 <laughs> not a scoreline you see every day in football but nonetheless uh big day for jv on posey stepping in a quarterback uh a rushing touchdown 90 yards on the ground as well as 203 yards through the air uh tj chase not a bad day catching the ball four receptions for 79 yards and uh, more or less what we expected out of this game umass not a very good football team uh at this stage in the game by any means uh, fau not much of a challenge but um even with like a fill-in quarterback um that jv on posey is pretty decent day for them yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to go not necessarily the opposite direction, Joe, but I've kind of piggybacked off of what's been kind of the feeling from FAU fans that I've heard from. Somewhat of a disappointing performance. And you're talking about a UMass team that has scored 12 points in three games. I've talked on this podcast about how they very much are in the rebuild mode under Walt Bell, former Florida State offensive coordinator, former Maryland offensive coordinator, Walt Bell. So I'm not saying that UMass is supposed to come in and blow them out 60 to zero every week. I mean, you at least expect that they're trying to put up a formidable performance. But with that being said, I think the biggest thing that I took away from this game was Javion Posey. If they are going to turn to him and be the guy for the future and the feeling out of Boca Raton, Joe, is that this is very much his audition, right? You know, with the rules that the transfer portal will allow in the offseason. I shouldn't say the rules that the transfer portal will allow. The rules that are in place where, you know, this year won't pertain to students' eligibility and the potential of a one-time transfer rule. Expect to be the transfer – excuse me, expect to see the transfer portal filled with a lot of players, especially quarterbacks. And from the FAU perspective, they very much look at this like, hey, it's JV on Pose's audition. And if we don't feel comfortable, we'll go out and get someone in the offseason. Or maybe, you know, the addition of a former FAU quarterback could go back to the roster. So the uh, that's my long-winded way of saying, Joe, 13 to 27 for 203 against UMass, not the best performance. There's kind of the questions of kind of his consistency and can he be a natural thrower? You know what he can do on the ground, right? The, the 19 carries for 90 yards. I think he's rushed for something like 332 yards on the year. I know he had over 100 against FIU. So you know what he can do as a dual threat. But I think they, uh, they, uh, the folks down there in Boca want to see more of what he can do as a passer. That aside, 
give credit to Jim Levitt's defense. I mean, that's a defense that they they coming off a stretch earlier in the year, Joe, where they hadn't allowed a touchdown in nine quarters. That ended in the FIU game a couple weeks ago, and they've only allowed two touchdowns in the previous 16 quarters of play. So they're firing all cylinders. I mean, Leighton McCarthy, Chris Jones, uh, uh, Jalen Joyner on the on the um, defensive ends. They're pressuring the quarterback, the, the um, cornerback, excuse me, Roman Mungin and um, Zion Gilbert playing good football. So I, I guess all in all, a win is better than a loss, as I like to say. But for FAU fans, I guess they would have expected to see a little bit more against a, a clearly rebuilding UMass team. That's fair. I mean, yeah, as we covered UMass, um, if you're not putting up a lot of points on them, then something – isn't at 100%. But nevertheless, like like you said, you know, this is an audition for Javion Posey to show that he can, you know, be a true quarterback and a true QB1. Um, but I think a lot of teams within the G5 especially are facing similar situations where they're just kind of, sure. you know, putting together a patchwork season based on what they have at their disposal with players opting out and so on and so forth. So, um, I mean, understandable for FAU fans to feel that way and the high expectations they have for that program. But I don't know. I feel like most football fans would be rather excited if they saw their team was five and one at this point in the year. Well, not, not in late November. Cause I can't remember the last time that's happened since like world war two, but you understand <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I, I absolutely do, Joe. I think just really quick to tie up that conversation. I think a lot of FAU fans are coming off of the Lane Kiffin offense that was, you know, run by Chris Robinson, and you saw the passing yards kind of go all, all, all over the place. And I think, you know, there's still a little bit of that in their minds, you know, wondering when is that going to click. So maybe they're a little bit biased in that end, but all in all, five and one, you know, it's not, it's not a, a record you can sneeze at given the circumstances of COVID. I'm sure the their neighbors down south in uh, Miami would love a five and one record right about now. <laughs> a lot of sneezing going on in Florida, regardless with those COVID numbers. But anyway, um, we got UTEP and uh, UAB was uh, scheduled to play on Friday, November 20th. That, of course, did not get canceled. Um, but we do have uh, a WKU FIU game from Saturday to talk about. Hilltoppers win that one 38 to 21. Uh, Tyrell Pigram, decent enough day through the air for him. Uh, 14 to 25 for 121 yards. Gage Walker's best game of the season by far, 17 carries for 127 yards and a touchdown there. Um, FIU tried to put a little bit of a comeback together towards the end, didn't quite pan out. Um, but Eric, as you're going to talk about, this is a extremely depleted FIU team. Um, so I'll just I'll talk a little bit about what I saw from Western here. Um, it was nice to see the run game finally come together uh, just after every single you know offensive line injury that they've had to deal with and gage walker just not really being able to get in any sort of rhythm um but also i think you you do have to give some credit to the uh defense and just how they've performed all year and i think we talked about it last week but uh d'angelo malone and devon key um continuing to show their you know, show show how they've earned their place in the uh, history of Western Kentucky football in particular. Um, certainly going to miss those guys when they're gone. But uh, WKU, four and six, um, not exactly where I think everybody wanted them to be this year. But given everything that's happened, I'll, I'll take that over what it, you know, was looking like it was going to be at the very beginning of the season. Yeah, Joe, you know, had a chance to make the trip up to Bowling Green, my first trip to Hodgson Smith Stadium. So it was a, a fun experience to get up there and check out Western Kentucky, as I call it, Joe Londrigan land up there in uh, that neck of the uh, of the country. But uh, I digress. Here's the biggest thing, Joe, for FIU. And it, you mentioned the injuries and them being banged up. 
it was a 13-10 ball game at halftime and, and quite frankly was 13-3 heading into the half. Uh, former uh, former Georgia receiver Jeremiah Holloman caught a touchdown early on, and then EJ Wilson took the kickoff back 100 yards. So FIU, first halftime lead of the year. Um, Tyrell Pigram managed to drive the, the tops down towards the end of the half and get that score to make it 13-10. And you know, I had a chance to pass Western Kentucky offense coordinator Brian Ellis at halftime. Uh, he was not exactly too thrilled with the performance of his offense. And they really showed out in the second half. And, and, and granted, you know, I want to make this point clear. FIU did not come out and open the second half well. You know, the first offensive drive for FIU, quarterback Max Bortenschlager was a, a matchup of two former Maryland teammates. Uh, Max Bortenschlager and Tyrell Pigram actually played together at Maryland, but uh, his first drive come out of halftime, you know, he's driving down the field, he's looking to scramble, fumbles the ball away, deep in FIU territory, Western Kentucky cashes in. The first play of the next drive, Bortenschlager drops back to throw, picked off, pick six. I believe it was Roger Cray on, on the pick six, if my memory serves me correct. And, uh, you know, that that kind of sealed the deal from there as far as kind of putting Western Kentucky away. And then, as you mentioned, Gage Walker kind of um, took, yeah, it was, sorry, it was Roger Cray on the fumble return and Eli Brown on the interception. But as you mentioned, Gage Walker and the rushing attack kind of, uh, you know, put the game away from Western Kentucky from there. The biggest thing with FIU is they're depleted. You know, they uh, – Butch Davis has talked about this a lot in post games whenever I've asked him, and and he's, you know, always been quick to point. Some FIU fans should look at it as an excuse. I crunched the numbers after the Western Kentucky game to really put it in perspective. FIU played 54 players. If you subtract the position-specific players, three quarterbacks who saw action, and then the long snapper, two uh, punter and kicker and, and kickoff specialists, that's subtract those seven guys. And then if you subtract the four guys who were hurt, Jamal Gates, Max Bortenschlager left, uh, looked like it may have been a concussion, but don't want to speculate too much on that. Uh, Jamal Gates, EJ Wilson, and then Jason Walker. They're down to 41 guys, Joe. Two healthy running backs left. And that is the reason, as you'll get into in our you know game previews for next week, FIU has already canceled their game against Louisiana Tech. They, they just don't have enough healthy bodies. I, I, it's getting to a point, Joe, where I know a lot of FIU fans are saying, okay, 41 players, but I'm sure they have more players on the roster. Yes, but when you add into account the 15 players who are out for the rest of the year, Joe, at what point is it a safety thing when you're going up against teams that are in reasonable health, given the, the circumstances of COVID, and you're going out there playing walk-ons and four-stringers. That, that at some point, it just seems to be a situation where, you know, um, uh, to be completely honest with you, Joe, it would not shock me if we've seen the last of FIU football for the season just based on the circumstances with which the rest of their season would have to play out and the teams that they're scheduled to play. Yeah, I would completely agree with that point based on everything that they've had to deal with. You ask at what point, is it going to be too much for the program to bear with all the injuries and everything? This is the point, <laughs> you know, if you're getting to the point where your roster is this depleted, like right now, this is the point where you say, you know what? All right. I'm okay. Like not that it's in the DNA of any D one athlete or coach to throw in the towel. But like you said, at this point, it's a safety issue. If you are really down to that few players to where you can even get bodies and pads anymore. Um, so that's definitely disappointing to see, but I, you know, you can't, obviously no one's blaming FIU for being in this situation. It's just, it's just sad that we we've reached this point with the pandemic injuries, et cetera. Nobody wants to see a program go through this, by the way, Bortenschlager sounds like something a freshman would, would do shots of. I, I was just waiting to get that in the whole time you were talking and I'd be disappointed <laughs> in myself if I didn't say it. So 
uh, best wishes, obviously, to uh, FIU as they kind of continue to figure out the health of their program in general. Um, with that, let's move on to the North Texas Rice game. Uh, me and Green win that one 27 to 17, uh, improved to three and three on the year as Rice dropped to one and two. DeAndre Torrey, another big game for him, 19 carries, 102 yards on the ground, and a touchdown. Um, it's weird to kind of see the evolution of North Texas over the years. Like, obviously, during the Mason Fine era and when Seth Luttrell was really starting to pick up the pace with that program, obviously the bulk of their power came through the passing game. So anytime we see, you know, a North Texas performance like this where the rush is such a key part of it, I don't want to say it's unsettling, but it's it's just strange. Um, and uh, Rice, uh, just just not really enough in the tank uh, beyond what they were able to do in the first quarter. Joe, I'm going to pick up where you left off there. You, not only is it weird to see the rushing game lead the way for North Texas, could you repeat that score for me one more time, the final score in that game? 27 to 17. North Texas only allowed 17 points, Joe? <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I mean, right. That's, that's crazy. Depending on, you know, how you've looked at what they've been able to accomplish on the defensive side of the ball the last year and a half or so. <laughs> the, the, yeah. That was kind of where I was going with that. Right. You know, the fact that North Texas beat rice at their own game, they beat them on the ground, 42 carries two sixty-nine and two touchdowns for North Texas rice on the ground, 36 carries for 49 yards. And of course, you know, you're, you're adding into account sack yardage on Mike Collins, but still, that is not the ball game that you've come to know and love from North Texas and Seth Luttrell over the past, you know, his entire tenure. So I'll give credit to Clint Bowen, you know, the former Kansas defensive coordinator comes over trying to, you know, kind of jumpstart former, uh, former North Texas defensive coordinator, Troy Refford, who was, you know, let go last year because of the poor defensive efforts. I mean, this game really surprised me to see that score. And let's not let the outing, uh, the, the performance by Dion Noble, the big, you know, nose tackle there, eight tackles, five tackles for loss, one sack. I mean, if they can get that kind of play, it, it would be nice for North Texas heading into next year if they can continue this sort of defensive play for the final two ball games, maybe finish five and three, and then you come back, get the quarterback situation squared away, and then who knows? You know, they're right back there in, the, in contention in the West in a completely different way that we've known them over the past three, four years. Absolutely. It's uh, it's interesting to see uh, North Texas reach this point with with everything that's gone into their program. Um, and hopefully, at least as a defense, this is kind of a uh, turning point for them. With that, then let's jump into uh, UTSA and Southern Miss. Roadrunners get by uh, on the skin of their teeth, 23 to 20 in this one. Roadrunners improved to six and four with a decent shot at taking CUSA West still, as we'll get into. Um, but, you know, for a Southern Miss team that's this depleted and as well as UTSA is playing, I have to kind of give it to Southern Miss for keeping it this close. Uh, Sincere McCormick, it, just a monster day for him. 32 carries, 173 yards, two touchdowns. Um, and on the other side for Southern Miss, an admirable day for Tate Watley. 22 of 39 for 272 yards and uh, two touchdowns through the air. Um so, yeah, I mean, again, I have to give it to Southern Miss. They're not giving up. Um, gave one of the better teams in the league this year a, a really solid game. Um, but like I said, UTSA came into hostile territory and turned in just a massive day for Sincere McCormick as he uh, continues to cement his legacy within that program. Yeah, Joe, you know, I'm going to piggyback off what you said there in the sense that with Southern Miss, 
not a big believer in the moral victory thing. Maybe I've been around too many coaches and they've really instilled that in my mind as far as no moral victories. But a Southern Miss team that's been so depleted, as we talked about, the last two games, they lost by three points each, you know, pushing Western Kentucky, but it was 13-10 score there. And then pushing, as you said, one of the better teams in CUSA West and, and you know, UTSA to a three-point game there. But outside of that, the biggest thing I know is for UTSA is, damn, I would love to see what we can get if a full year of a healthy Frank Harris and Sincere McCormick. I know, like we talked about last week, they kind of had a wealth of riches this year after really struggling to find a quarterback for the better part of Frank Wilson's tenure there. Now they've got a couple in Frank Harris and Josh Adkins, a Lowell Narcisse. But it just seems as if the combination of Frank Harris and Sincere McCormick really presents a, a dynamic in Conference USA as far as what Harris can do with his legs, even though this game he only had five carries at 23 yards. We've seen the kind of explosive dynamic athlete that he can be as a runner. And then Sincere McCormick, you know, the new father, that's why he missed last week's game. Uh, going over the 1,000-yard mark, I believe my memory serves me correct. He's the first uh, roadrunner to go over 1,000 yards at the FBS level. So great ball game there. But, yeah, it's just, you know, UTSA in the thick of things in the CUSA West. And like you mentioned, we'll get into it in the midsection uh, of this podcast. But really impressed with the with the job that Jeff Trailer's done. You know, I know this year is going to be viewed through a prism of, oh, it was through COVID and, you know, some teams were depleted. But the offense looks productive in a way that it hadn't looked under Frank Wilson. And more importantly to the folks there at UTSA, uh, Lisa Campos specifically, athletic director down there, the wins are uh, trending in the right direction. So good job all the way around there. Absolutely. Things are looking up for UTSA football. That much is certain. Um, speaking of things looking up, uh, might be a little too late in the game, but Middle Tennessee getting their third victory of the season over Troy, uh, which is definitely an upset. Uh, Blue Raiders take that one 20 to 17. Uh, Asher O'Hara, 25 carries on the ground for 86 yards. Decent day through the air as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you, more than anything, you just have to give it up to the Middle Tennessee D. I mean, anytime you can keep a, uh, a Troy team that relies so heavily on a fast-paced offense to only 17 points, I think that is, uh, I mean, it's it, not only is it a moral victory, it's a, a victory just in general. I mean, um, I think a lot of people had counted MTSU out for good reason, but like, I think anytime you can get a win like this, it's, it's, you know, it raises spirits as the season continues to wind down here. Joe, not even just with good reason in a sign of college football in 2020, these two teams played eight weeks ago. <laughs> they played eight weeks ago in Murfreesboro and Troy beat them 47, 14. So you didn't just have good reason you had evidence from earlier this year that Troy looked like to be a much better team than Middle Tennessee. But of course, as we've said throughout this podcast, throughout this year, COVID is going to be the theme. You know, who knows the situation that Middle Tennessee was coming into that game with COVID? Who knows the situation with Troy was coming in? If you look at the records, Middle Tennessee's three and six, Troy's four and four. So both teams have played their fair amount of ball games this year. Just I mean, nothing's more 2020 than that, right? You know, a team gets blown up by 33 points uh, eight weeks ago, and they come back and get the win. As you mentioned, Asher O'Hara, 19-23, probably his most efficient ball game of the year. No touchdowns, no picks, but the emphasis on no picks. No turnovers after throwing, I believe it was eight interceptions in the first five games. If memory serves me correct, it could be seven or eight interceptions. There were a couple ball games where he had two picks and a couple where he had one there. So good to see the no turnover game from him. And of course, just kind of leading the way as a rusher, but also Middle Tennessee's defense. I've talked about Scott Schaefer's defense on you know my Monday column, and I've talked about it on this podcast. They had not been performing up to par. 
And great job by them, as you mentioned, to hold that Troy offense to, you know, really in check, especially the rushing attack. Middle Tennessee is ranked 115th, if my memory serves me correct, of teams, of FBS teams that have played more than two games. So the stat, you know, at least has a chance to not be skewed by one bad outing. Middle Tennessee State's ranked 115 out of 118 FBS teams. So didn't expect them to perform that well against the run, but they did so. And uh, Yusuf Ali, nice day for him as a receiver, kind of being that number two option behind Jaron Pierce. Nine, excuse me, seven grabs for 90 yards and a score there. So, um, uh, or excuse me, he did he did not. I thought he had a score there. It was a Frank Pizan touchdown run, which was the only uh, touchdown in the Shaton Mobley touchdown were the touchdowns there. But still a good, game, a good day for him uh, as a receiver. And yeah. Just nothing more indicative of 2020 in the sense that these two teams could play eight weeks after just a complete throttling by Troy and Middle Tennessee gets the win on the road at that. Absolutely. It's almost like we stepped into like an alternate timeline or something. I mean, if you look at like the yardage in this game, MTSU 396, Troy 392. So like it was that close in terms of yardage, but the huge difference maker uh, just ended up being those two Troy turnovers that the MTSU defense was able to to force. And I said it already, but can't really give enough credit to that group of players for uh, putting the team in a position to get the victory there. So um, like we said, MTSU can have their heads held high heading into these waning weeks of the season. Um, two more games got canceled last week that we didn't really talk about. Louisiana Tech and uh, UL Monroe didn't happen. And then um, Marshall and Charlotte didn't happen, which disappointing for Marshall if for no other reason than one more victory could have put them that much closer to, uh, you know, cracking the top 20 in the recent, uh, recently released CFB playoff rankings. But what are you going to do um, with that? Then let's talk about some other news and notes from within CUSA this week. Um, first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, some rescheduling news for this coming week. And uh, that's that the WKU and Charlotte game scheduled for uh, this Saturday has now been moved to Tuesday uh, in order to accommodate uh, COVID-19 protocols there. Kickoff will be at uh, 1030 Eastern on CBS Sportsnet. So we'll talk about that game a little bit in depth. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting. I was talking about this decision with uh, our Charlotte writer, Hunter Bailey, earlier in the day. And uh, he deemed it the brunch bowl, which is appropriate. <laughs> um <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not on the uh, West Coast that week. Uh, otherwise, I'd have to get up at 730 in the morning to watch a college football game, which is uh, a little earlier than I like to start my day. Joe, you know, you, you kind of mentioned as far as the scheduling issues and and not to make light of a, of a you know, otherwise kind of a funny crack there by Hunter. But where I think you're going to have some ramifications, I feel like I should make this clear for the listening audience because I'd kind of mentioned this in passing with the FIU deal is with this game being on Tuesday. FIU is scheduled to head to Charlotte to play on Saturday. Uh, Joe, I don't know about you. We don't want to speak anything to existence. I don't even know with the COVID protocols that that game would be able to play, be able to be played on four days notice, let alone just the challenges of playing a game. Who knows if that game goes into triple overtime and then uh, you got to play another game in four days. So uh, it seems to me the the smart money is that that FIU Charlotte game is in somewhat jeopardy is am i am i you know leaping to conclusions there joe or are you kind of following me there i'm definitely picking up what you're putting down on uh <laughs> on that note um <laughs> yeah it, it's really tough to kind of bounce back that quickly to play any kind of football game we don't even really see it that often in the nfl with that rapid of a turnaround um and like you said the covid 19 protocol certainly don't make anything easier and um i think for that reason too i think it's even more reason to think, like you said, I think FIU football might 
be done, at least for the short term, uh, just due to the lack of players and everything in that regard. Um, on the other side, that the folks at Charlotte aren't necessarily counting on the team making, you know, a postseason, and they're just trying to squeeze out what money they can the season. So I, I kind of see both um, schools of thought on that regard. Yeah, yeah. So just the, the other side of that equation is Charlotte and Marshall still have a game that needs to be rescheduled. And if you look at that from the the sides of both Charlotte and Marshall, Charlotte, excuse me, Marshall and FIU is scheduled to be replayed on 12-5 in South Florida. Or excuse me, is it, I think it's 12-12. Uh, I got to get my uh, my schedule and check that really quickly. But the final game of the year for FIU is scheduled to be on 12-11. That game is scheduled to be played in South Florida at 6.30 p.m. It would make more sense for both sides with Charlotte and Marshall who need to make up their contest as well. Charlotte looking to, as you mentioned, you know, rack up a couple wins and possibly get, you know, look appealing for a, a bowl game. They would need that game against Marshall. If you look at the Marshall side of things, it would make more sense for them to get that game at home instead of the the you know cost that going to traveling to South Florida, and that's probably a better win for them should they get that win in you know whatever bowl seating that they'll be looking for as opposed to beating FIU. So a lot of ramifications going on with the schedule. So I say all that to say this: uh, to be determined is probably the best way to look at this schedule for the rest of the year as opposed to you know really sliding in dates and times. Yeah, no, all solid points on that front. Um, it, it's going to remain interesting to see if the majority of these games even do get played with all the rescheduling uh, that had to happen as a result of COVID-19. But, um, you know, I'm all for more holiday football, postseason or no. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. But just kind of want everyone to stay safe at this point in the game when, you know, with FIU, easier said than done, obviously. Um so we talked in depth about FIU's injury situation as well. Um, so with that, let's move on to some news out of Western Kentucky. Um, Garland LaFrance has entered the transfer portal, uh, posted on his Twitter. First, I would like to thank Coach Helton and Coach Beltcamp and the rest of the football staff for giving me the opportunity to play for WKU. After talking with my family and coaches, I have entered my name in the transfer portal. Uh, so that's coming from uh, Mr. LaFrance himself. Certainly wish him all the best. I certainly understand this move given the emergence of Gage Walker the last two seasons. And um, when you factor in the fact that Walker, you know, maybe, maybe not, but he has the option to come back and play another year, uh, as do Ja'Kyrie Moses and Keyshawn McClendon, both of whom are, as of now, on the depth chart above uh, – France. So I certainly understand his reasoning there. And most likely, I obviously haven't spoken to him or anybody with real knowledge of the situation, but you have to, it stands to reason that he's looking to go somewhere where he can actually get playing time. And he's not bad. I mean, in the, uh, in his freshman season under Mike Sanford, we saw his ability to kind of come out of the backfield as a pass catcher. And he's got a lot of raw speed. He's just, you know, if you look, if you put him next to Gage Walker, um, you know, it's it's it reminds me of that picture of like Mark Ingram standing next to Derrick Henry, and it looks like Derrick Henry is like his dad. <laughs> so, um, but like, I don't know. I understand the move. Certainly, wish uh, Garland all the best. 
Yeah, I think the big thing for him, as you mentioned, he got caught up in kind of the midst of the coaching switch. When he came in, he was a running back out of New Orleans, and then Tyson Helton moved him to wide receiver last year. Looks, at least when I, I looked on the on the flip card, Joe, when I was in Bowling Green, that he was listed as, as a defensive back. Don't know if that's where they had him playing at the moment, but three positions in three years, that certainly isn't you know, uh, conducive to real success as a football player. And as you mentioned, Gage Walker, you know, looks to be the guy there. He did walk and participate in senior day ceremonies. So, you know, we'll see what his future is, whether he chooses to come back or not. Um, but yeah, definitely kind of got buried behind the run. Shakari Mose and some of the other players, no matter what position he was playing. So definitely looking to get somewhere where he can see the field. Absolutely. And with that, let's, let's talk about um, the narrowing races, uh, for the COSA divisional titles, particularly in the West. So if you look at the East, Marshall's 4-0, uh, haven't lost a game all year, 7-0 overall. Um, FAU, 5-1, 4-1 in uh, in conference play. And it's looking like it's going to be Marshall in the East uh, making it to the championship game, depending on how they even set that up in terms of format. Um, and then in the West, it is a very tight race between UAB, UTSA, and Louisiana Tech. Um, the Roadrunners have one league game left on the current schedule. UAB and Louisiana Tech have two games left. Uh, kind of remains to be seen whether or not those games end up getting rescheduled for one reason or another. Uh, so, Eric, what do you kind of make of these divisional races as we come towards the end of the season, particularly in the West? Yeah, so the division race in the East looks to be wrapped up, right? You know, as we mentioned, the Marshall, who knows how many games they'll play. And as I'll mention here, uh, noted by, I believe it was Greg Luca, who uh, down there at San Antonio, who covers UTSA, noted this first. And then Chris Vanini followed up with some more clarification. Chris Vanini of The Athletic, as far as what the circumstances are surrounding, need to be eligible for the um, for division title. But it, it, it pretty much appears that Marshall has this wrapped up. They're 7-0. They beat Florida Atlantic, so they have the tiebreaker. And they're 4-0 in CUSA. Now, as far as the East is as far as the West is concerned, you got UTSA at six and four. You got UAB at four and three. You got La Tech at four and three. UTSA is four and two in conference. UAB is two and one, and Louisiana Tech is three and two. Right. So now that I'm going to transition into you know Chris Vanini's tweet here, and he says, "Check with Conference USA to be eligible for the CUSA title game. A team must play no less than two fewer the conference average of CUSA games." I know that sounds confusing, so let me try to bring this around including remaining games, the average of Conference USA conference games is 6.6, rounded down to six. So playing four games would be eligible at the moment. Essentially, what they're saying is you have to play two fewer games than the average of Conference USA games that have been played. What that number ends up being at the end of the year is going to decide who plays for the CUSA title game. So, again, it looks as if Marshall's in the best circumstances to win. Can't really say at the West in the moment, Joe, if you really wanted to get technical with this show, if you really, really wanted to get technical with this, it would not do UAB much help. They have uh, a game here against Southern Miss that was canceled on the 27th, so next week's game, and the game at Rice. If I'm understanding this correctly, it would not do them any favors to try and make up another game because, A, they'd be risking a loss. B, they would only be heightening the average of Conference USA games played. With that number being four right here, UAB is at two and one. So in theory, they could win against Rice and seemingly, if I'm understanding this correctly, 
have a higher winning percentage in the division than UTSA, should UTSA lose another game, um, or even even if UB, UAB, no, if UAB was three and one, what was that quick math at something like 66%, uh, at four and two, uh, that's something like 60% as well. Yeah, so I mean, essentially, it would only make UAB, you only, we only have the incentive to play this final game against Rice and that's it, and let UTSA, you know, let their chips fall where they may. So all in all, really tedious and confusing. I hope no one's brain exploded there. But uh, it, 2020 is just going to cause a really complicated and convoluted end to the West Division race. Appreciate the statistical analysis there, Eric. Eat your heart out, Nate Silver. Um, I, cannot, <laughs> I am I am not the guy to do that. If you if you've ever seen not another team movie, um, I'm basically Reggie Ray. I only have a couple concussions left before I'm just full blown catatonic. Um, but then again, I appreciate the insight there. It's going to be super interesting to see how UTSA finishes up the season as well as uh, UAB and Louisiana tech. Um, and we will definitely have our eyes on that and talk about it in future podcasts. Four degrees between the two of us. Did we, uh, do we still have any idea of what happens in the West or are we just uh, winging it at this point? <laughs> uh, I mean, as with most years in CUSA, kind of seems like we're winging it. But um, it, there's just too many <laughs> uncertainties with the the scheduling things that continue to happen in this league and throughout all of college football, really, for us to say, like, we know exactly what's going to happen. We don't. But I think the analysis that you just provided is more or less as good as we're going to get. Um, so thank you. Appreciate time, that, Eric. <laughs> Of course. Um, so with that, let's jump into week 13 and uh, some of the games that, as of now, we do have on the schedule for COSA, uh, starting, of course, with uh, Rice hosting UTEP on Saturday, the 28th. Uh, Rice favored by 11 and a half heading into this one. I'm actually going to take UTEP here based on what we kind of saw with uh, the Owls against North Texas. I'm not super optimistic on their chances to kind of end their extremely short season with uh, a winning record. But um, I do really like what Gavin Hardison and Dion Hankins have been able to do. Uh, obviously El Paso kind of remains a, a COVID-19 hotbed. So, you know, if there is a game on this uh, very small schedule that you really need to be worried about, it's probably this one. But if the game does get played, um, I think UTEP is uh, my pick to win this one here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with uh, I, I, I think the for me the biggest thing is really going to come out and how can Rice run the football? If UTEP's able to put together, put forth a solid effort defensively, UTEP's got enough weapons, especially talk about Gavin Hardison and Deion Hankins and you know Jacob Cowing, Justin Garrett, to get the job done offensively. But if Rice is able to establish the line of scrimmage, which you know with Mike Bloomgren, you know they're looking to do that playing at home. Uh, they're, if, if they can establish that line of scrimmage and really kind of get the, the not even the the big chunks, just have to you know get four or five yards at a time, kind of that quote unquote intellectual brutality that they preach down there at Rice. I, I think Rice gets this win, and that's what I'm going with. I, I think they'll be able to bounce back well. I know UTEP was really frustrated they didn't get a chance to play the FI, uh, FIU game and a couple other games because they really want to capitalize on the momentum they had this year winning three games so far. But I just wonder if this year, if they've kind of maxed out on what their their um, their win total is or their max percentage. And that's fine. With three wins for UTEP this year, it's more than they had in the past three combined. So baby steps, but give me rice on this one. Fair enough. Uh, we also have UTSA hosting North Texas on Saturday at 3 Eastern. UTSA favored by three points heading into this one. 
Um, look, I think if North Texas's defense plays like they did last week, then they have a chance. But ultimately, I think, you know, Sincere McCormick is, is surging. I don't know if becoming a dad just kind of made him into like more of, you know, an incredible Hulk type figure than he already was. Um, and then, of course, like a healthy Frank Harris is just full on dangerous. So we'll see if we get that. Uh, but you know, I think the Roadrunners have too much positive momentum in their favor to uh, bet against them against a, a North Texas team that's, I don't know, kind of hard to figure out for lack of a better uh, description. Yeah, Joe. So for me, this game, as you mentioned, it's really going to come down to what North Texas can get going offensively and what can they do defensively. Defensively, if we talk about in this podcast, as far as UTSA goes, I know we haven't made mention of this in prior podcasts because you know things have kind of been hectic here. But they had a situation a couple of weeks ago where Tyrone Nix, you know, was coaching the game, I believe it was against UTEP in the fifty-two twenty-one win, and did not coach the second half. So the announcement was made during the second half of the game. He, he by all accounts, was there for the first half and something happened where he did not uh was put on a, a administrative leave in the second half so they're still kind of in flux as far as maybe what's going on defensively but what's a good formula around that joe is a lot of sincere mccormick as we've established you know really having a really underrated year it's too bad this is happening in the year of covid because i if my memory serves me correct sincere mccormick is either leading the league in or at least leading the the nation in rushing yards or is in the top five. And I know that number is skewed with a lot of teams having only played two or three games, but still nothing to sneeze at. He's really just broken out and shown that he deserves to be in there in the conversation with the Spencer Browns and guys like that, as far as best running backs in CUSA. Uh, if Sincere McCormick can get going and that'll be a tough task for that, U, that, uh, excuse me, that UTEP, that North Texas defense is shut down. I've got UTSA. So I'm going to go with that, but yeah, keep an eye on their UTSA's uh, kind of fluctuating defensive coordinator situation. Yeah, definitely a weird wrinkle added to an already crazy year for Conference USA and college football in general. Um, and then wrapping up the Saturday slate, we have MTSU hosting FAU. FAU favored by six and a half heading into this one. Um, I think the Owls are a fairly safe pick, while MTSU, obviously, they've, they've taken some steps that they really needed to take. Um, at least you can point to those last week from the uh, Troy victory. But I think FAU, you know, despite some frustrations that we we already discussed from FAU fans regarding their performance against UMass, um, this is going to be <laughs> kind of a battle of like dual threat quarterbacks between uh, Javion Posey and Asher O'Hara. Um, I think FAU are just a little bit more of a, a complete team in that regard. So uh, look for them to get this win. Joe, the last time that FAU has won in Murfreesboro, the number one song in the nation was Nelly and Tim McGraw over and over again. And then we had My Boo by Usher. Both songs that uh, we can remember pretty well. I think both were in our middle school days back then. Just goes to say, it has been a very long time since the Owls have won in Murfreesboro. 2004, October of 2004 to be exact. Last time they won, uh, FAU wasn't even an A, uh, and currently FBS at the time, they were a 1AA team. So it goes to show you that Floyd Stadium has been kind of a house of horrors for uh, FAU. With all that being said, I know it's a tough ask, especially against Middle Tennessee on the road, Asher O'Hara, you know, the great football that he's played and the team has kind of played in the past few weeks, winning two out of their last three. I think FAU is the more talented team. FAU has a litany of running backs and they'll be looking to get going against MTSU's run defense. After under really underperforming against UMass, I think B.J. Emmons, Malcolm Davidson, James Charles, a steady dose of those guys, along with allowing Javion Posey to make the plays that are there. Give me FAU. I don't think it'll be a blowout, but I do think FAU wins this one. 
fair enough. I don't think it'll be a blowout either, which, by the way, if you live in Tennessee or anywhere in the Mid-South, really, you will know that that Nelly Tim McGraw joint is still on <laughs> heavy rotation. <laughs> so how much has changed really since the last time FAU won in Murfreesboro, but I digress on Tuesday. Then we have Charlotte hosting Western Kentucky, even line heading into this one. So uh, you can catch that one on CBS sports network. Um, this is a tough pick for me, but I think I'm gonna, I think I'm going to give it to, the tops just because Charlotte hasn't played in uh, as Hunter said earlier in what feels like years, it's, it's tough to bounce back from that. So I think just given the fact that uh, Western Kentucky's just had more time to practice and get in a rhythm, I think that's going to pay dividends for them. And uh, hopefully Gage Walker can kind of get a repeat of the performance he had last week against FIU and uh, get that, you know, get that yardage total up. Uh, Cause he's only sitting at like five sixteen right now, which is, you know, if you had told me that based on how well he performed last year, I, I wouldn't have thought that, but here we are. So uh, I think give me the tops on the road to finish out their uh, schedule. Joe, I'm going to pick Charlotte and you made a point that almost swayed me in the sense that I'm just looking here and, and, and it kind of been so long since they've played. I've, I don't want to say forgotten, but it's it kind of surprised you when you look, the last game they played was 1031. I mean, almost two months without playing a football game, Butch Davis, told me post game after Western Kentucky, the only way a football team can get better is by practicing consistently and playing week in and week out something Charlotte has not done. But with that being said, I am still not overly impressed with what I saw by Western Kentucky. I mean, those two turnovers forced were great turnovers and great job by Clayton White's defense. But with that being said, you know, FIU is really a depleted team. And once those turnovers happened, they didn't really have much of a chance as far as coming back. I think Charlotte has looked better in 20 or in 2020, almost at 2013 in 2020. And I think they have enough firepower. So give me Charlotte. Definitely think of a very close game, definitely a one score game. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going with the Niners here. I just think overall, it's not as much that Charlotte has been overly impressive in the few outings we've had from them as much as Western Kentucky still hasn't impressed me enough. And while they put up a good performance against FIU, as we've said, you know, the Panthers are really struggling, whether it's been offensively or through injury. So that win didn't wholly impress me. Give me Charlotte. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a really entertaining game. I look forward to everyone having that on in the background as they pretend to work in that weird time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But um, you know, I think if there's one thing we can all kind of cling to in the midst of a really <laughs> strange and annoying holiday season with everything COVID related and whatnot, it's the fact that we still have sports to watch. So uh, very happy and safe Thanksgiving weekend to you all. Once again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And of course, at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter to kind of keep up with the stuff that we are putting out on site. And um, yeah, check out underdogdynasty.com every day for more G5 football content. Uh, we look forward to doing another episode with you guys real soon. Happy football watching. Stay safe.